Beloved, I am so excited today to be at the table with the Reverend Dr. Janet Wolf, who has worked as a poverty rights organizer, United Methodist pastor with urban and rural congregations, college and seminary professor, community mediator, learner, and teacher. She focuses on public theology, transformative justice, and nonviolent direct action to disrupt things like the cradle-to-prison pipeline. She's a member of the Coordinating Committee of the National Council of Elders and on the board of the James Lawson Institute for Research and Study of Nonviolent Movements. She's the author of Practicing Resurrection, The Gospel of Mark and Radical Discipleship. Janet and her husband, Bill, have five sons and seven grandchildren. Welcome, Janet, to the table. Thank you so much. It's a good gift to be with you. Well, it's my honor. It's my honor to have you join us today. Now, there are a couple of things that uh, I like to ask at the beginning. I think they're really deep and important questions. And that is, do you drink coffee or tea? Both. First Both. thing in the morning, coffee, dark, roast ah. coffee, thick coffee. Amen. See, because uh-huh. I was going to ask if you take it cream, sugar, or straight up, and you've already answered that question. You like it bold and dark in the morning. I like it bold and dark. A little tiny bit of non-dairy creamer helps me out every now and then. Excellent. And then but- in the afternoon, probably tea. If it's cold outside, hot tea. If it's hot outside, cold tea. Excellent. So you're a both and person. I love that. I love that. I I like the both and. (laughs) And I also try to have during our conversation at the table, a mug that for me speaks to the individual that I'm going to be in conversation with and the Mm -hmm. topics that we'll be covering. And the mug that I couldn't uh, get beyond when I thought about our time together was this, Lord, I offer my prayer as my work and my work as my prayer. For me, that resonates with who you are and the work that you do. Thank you so much. Absolutely. I first encountered you, Janet, in person during the United Women of Faith Assembly in Orlando, Florida last year. Your words were both inspiring and convicting. And I wanted to converse with you since that conference. So now let us get to the deepest things we know. I learned there, and as I read your book and and did some more uh, listening to your sermons, that you are a fierce advocate of radical discipleship, and you mince no words in calling yourself and the church to account on matters of exclusion and dominance. Where did your passion for justice begin? Tell us a little about a little bit about your story and how that conviction grew within you. I think. Um My parents, we grew up in a rural Delaware community, um, a mill town, right near the mustering capital of the world. Yes. And then I was in the fifth grade and we moved to Atlanta, Georgia, which was an entirely foreign world. This is 1958. Um, So Lester Maddox is in the streets selling axe handles and Dr. King is speaking. Uh, we attended a downtown Lutheran church. And it was for me the first time that faith 
took on flesh. Mm. Um, it was more than showing up for church. So I remember when the integration team sent notes to the churches that they would be coming. We were downtown at Peachtree and Fourth. Right. Um, and the church, you know, had a big debate. What shall we do? Oh, my, this is going to happen. And in the end, we put out this little tiny sign that said, all who went to worship are welcome here. Right. Not exactly a revolutionary statement, <laughs> um, but, you know, something. And the integration team comes and they walk down to the front and they are part of the service and people greet them and then they leave and people are like, oh, okay. Right. And we go outside and across the street is the Southern Baptist Church and they have surrounded their property so that no one can get on it. And the larger men in the congregation are um, threatening the civil rights uh, workers and pushing them and um, making sure they don't cross the line. Right. And it was for me the first time a sermon came out of the pulpit and walked into the streets. It was the first time. I understood that there is no neutral ground, um, that not to, not to decide is to decide, uh, to <laughs> yes. default with those in power. And, um, and it, you know, SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, came and spoke to our youth group. Um, it, was, it was a time when the whole world opened up differently for me right. uh, and called me into accountability. And I think... Um, after that, uh, there were a lot of different pieces, but for me, the next big step um, is, I'm trying to decide what the next big step, the next big step <laughs> is that uh, I got married to my high school sweetheart. We had two children. A ring said, one in God. Um, I believed that. Mm. And then he left. Uh, so suddenly I was a single mom of two little boys with right. three part-time jobs. And I had been in the church my whole life. Mm -hmm. um, and I was, I had never met anybody who was divorced. I didn't even tell anybody except my sister for six months that he was gone. I just kept saying he was busy with work. Oh, goodness. Because um, I didn't know what to do. Right. And finally, right. I went to my pastor. I had taught adult Sunday school. I was part of the youth group leadership. I was on the decision-making council. I was part of a national um, hunger action team. And when I went to my pastor, hoping for consolation and comfort, right? Um, he said, well, Janet, you know, you're always welcome to worship here, uh, but you're no longer an acceptable role model. So you'll need to resign from all your leadership positions. He wow. put into words what I was already feeling, which is even God thinks I'm not good enough. Right. I'll never miss you out. Right. I'm not okay as I am. And um, that was a huge moment for me. I mean, after that, I was angry with God. I was angry with all male human beings except my two children. <laughs> I was angry with the church. Um, and we went to a little tiny house church that met in a garage right. inside a housing project in the largest concentration of poverty in the city mm. because I had worked with the pastor and we had taken um, kids who did not have dress up clothes there because right. you could wear jeans and t-shirts and be right. noisy. Um, and they loved us back into life. Mm. They, they put flesh on grace. Mm. Um, I was difficult and prickly and they just never gave up on me. Um, 
Yeah. So those so are two more stories, um, but I think those are two huge pieces for me. Um, absolutely, absolutely. Again, you, you, you were in the crucible of either the church living the gospel or the church living empire. And in both of those, to my mind, what you encountered when you came out of that church and saw the other gentleman across the street forming mm. a human fence to say, you will not come into our sanctuary, right? We, we right. will not be integrated in this way by this integration team. But then also the rejection that you receive from a pastor at a church where you were providing leadership, at a church right. where you were a member and, and contributing to then have that rejection. Uh, and, 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 and so I, I can understand. I, I think now that might help me understand. I was going to ask you about this quote uh, that you open your book with uh, from Brueggemann. Um, there are three quotes, actually. All of them are provocative. But the one I was most intrigued with is from Walter Brueggemann, and it says, it is likely that our theological problem in the church is that our gospel is a story believed, shaped, and transmitted by the dispossessed. And we are now a church of possession for which the rhetoric of the dispossessed is offensive. And it, so, uh, I, I, again, I, I think I've, uh, that what you've shared with us already helps to answer the question of why you chose that as one of the three quotes to open the book. But would you well, expound upon that just a little more? Yeah, there's another piece to that, which is then um, I go to this little house church. They love me. Um, they're putting up with me. They're supporting us. And then they announce that Christmas Eve services are always inside the prison. Uh, I have gone to a large suburban church. This is not my idea of Christmas <laughs> Eve. Right. Um, but the pastor is insistent that we cannot hear the radicality of the gospel. Uh, even though we're in the middle of a housing project, we cannot hear it without being in a place where life is threatened. Mm. Uh, we're into the middle of the harshest uh, systems that are battering people day after day right. comes this extraordinary good news. Um, and, and it takes on flesh and it disrupts everything else. So, I'm not thinking this is a good idea, but this is a church who loved me. So I go with my two little boys. And when we get to the prison, it's on lockdown. Something has happened. I don't know what. We're stuck in the parking lot. Right. We are a handful of people in the parking lot. I'm convinced nobody inside even knows we're there. And then even though it's Nashville, Tennessee, it starts snowing <laughs> and sleeping. Now we are a handful of people and we're huddled around and I'm figuring, you know what? I'm going to get out of this. I'm right. going to get kids with sore throats and earaches. They're going to have to go to the doctor. I'm going to miss work. This is not my idea of Christmas Eve. I mean, I remember, you know, poinsettias, candlelight, trumpets, little kids dressed up for the pageant, right. huge choirs walking in. And at one time we had a live donkey. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but I'm there with the kids and we lean in to try to get the Christ candle lit and somebody hands me the Bible and says, read this. And it's Isaiah, but the people who sat in darkness upon them has light shined. Yes. Um, and I'm still feeling grumpy. And then my one of my kids uh, pulls on my coat and says, mama, look. And I turn and you can tell this is 1975. 
And I see that in floor after floor and cell after cell in the prison, people are holding not matches mm. and lighters to the window. Mm. So that by the time we sing Silent Night, I figure there's a chorus inside and out. Oh, my God. And it was, for me, another moment of conversion um, where I recognize both the need for community that helps me turn to see what God is doing in the world when I would never have anticipated that. Mm. Um, And also the power of social location. I mean, just where we are, who we see, who we listen to, and how that shapes our hearing and our response to the gospel. Um, So, yeah. And I have been going to the prison since and have found that the most profound and powerful theology happens inside uh, prison walls because the discussion about liberation or salvation or forgiveness or redemption is not theoretical. It's life and death. Right. Um, yeah. So you take me now to a video that I watched of you. It's a video where you're talking about the problem with charity and, oh, and, yeah. and you and, and there's a part of that where you talk about your prison ministry um, and how faith communities have cooperated in naming people unclean and how we scandalize people. The fundamental failure, it seems to me, of faith communities is that we have cooperated in naming people unclean. So then the scandal becomes the folks who are in prison or the kids who are dropping out of school or the teens who are disconnected and hanging out there on the streets. But biblically, the scandal is the systems and the structures that relentlessly push people towards death. The scandal is not unclean people. Biblically, there, are no such, there is no such thing as unclean people. The scandal is the theologies that collaborate with this system of domination that renders so many human beings disposable. Walter Wink says we got to push and figure out how we have become kept chaplains of an unjust order. We got to shift the scandal from the unclean people to the unclean systems and theologies and ask what it is that distances us. Less than 20% of the people inside a prison ever get a visit from an outside person. Where's the church? What is it that we are caught up in doing if we are not hanging out with folks? And, and, and I, got, I got a short amount of time, so let me hustle on. Because I think there's another shift, and that goes along with it, and it is the shift from charity to justice. And it is remembering what Howard Thurman said, that charity is one of the greatest forms of violence, because in charity, we rob people of their identity and their vocation. In charity, my identity is someone who needs something, and my vocation is to be thankful and measure up to your needy measure. But every human being... Every human being made in the image of the divine is defined, has an identity as a child of God. Our vocation for each and every human being is to join God in the repair of the world. And Pamela Couture would argue that when we do charity instead of justice, we simply making ourselves feel good while propping up the very systems that are killing off the folks we're trying to do something about. And that's the third shift. And the third shift is we got to Quit thinking up programs and develop, no kidding, authentic long-term partnerships. 
um, because those of us who have never been incarcerated will always get it wrong when we are creating programs if we are not allowing the voices of those who are hardest hit to be the loudest, most decisive voices in our decision making. I met Ndume in Riverbend because he was a part of our graduate theology classes, and we argue that every seminary in this country ought to have at least one class that takes place behind prison bars where half the students are folks who cannot leave at the end of the class because some of the most powerful theology happens behind prison walls. If you want to talk about forgiveness, freedom, liberation, if you want to begin to understand redemption, go someplace where that question is urgent, not where it's theoretical, optional, or irrelevant Jesus. Well, Talk to us about how you came to that understanding of sort of the way we've misappropriated. We, we have misinterpreted uh, the gospel, scandalizing the wrong thing and sanitizing <laughs> that which should be scandaled. I mean, it's really pretty stunning that we um, as Christians follow one who was actually uh, criminalized, arrested on trumped up charges mm -hmm. by a mob, beaten and caged and then executed in a state sanctioned murder. Right. And yet we are absent from the prisons unless we think we are coming in to save somebody. Mm. I mean, we are not there as learners or partners in doing theology and changing the systems. Um, one of my friends, a brilliant artist, Ndume Alakishani, spent 20 years on Tennessee's death row for a crime he did not commit. My Lord. And he often said, you know, all those years, church folks coming in trying to save my soul. Hell, I didn't need anybody to save my soul. I need somebody to save my ass. Mm, my um, God. I think that charity comforts us. Uh, while we prop up the very systems we think we are doing something about. Right. So we offer backpacks to public school kids, mm. but we don't change the public education system, which is resegregated, which right. uh, depends upon harsh punishments, um, particularly if you are black or brown or don't speak English as your mother tongue or have some kind of varying ability. Um, so two things, Vincent Harding and uh, Howard Thurman talk about Jesus is born at the wall. Right. And this is the community of wall bruised people. Mm. And when we are here, we hear the radicality of the gospel. But when we are over here, we become theological justifiers for the very systems that are pushing people with their backs against the wall. Right. And I think that's right. Um, look at the Christmas story, right? The Christmas right. story um, is a radical upset of the way things are. It's not good news for the folks in power. <laughs> right. They're right. still upset. They start killing people. Right. Um, and yet most of our Christmas celebrations are, you know, we may give charity gifts to kids in poverty, but we don't change the fundamental system that is perpetuating the poverty. Right. Wesley argued that it is better for the salvation of our souls to hang out with the people on the streets, with people who are impoverished, than it is for us to show up in church on a Sunday morning for communion. Mm. He also said, don't build big buildings. Right. Because if you right. build big buildings, you will be dependent upon people with wealth. And then he says, there goes the gospel. Mm. 
Um, Vincent Harding would argue, and Howard Thurman as well, that charity is a form of violence. Right. It robs people of their identity and vocation instead of being a child of God whose vocation is to join God in the repair of the world. Right. Um, they suddenly become someone who needs to meet our definition of needy and their vocation um, is to be grateful to us for whatever we have decided they need right? Um, without any consultation with them. Theological yeah. justifiers. I love that term, theological yeah. justifiers. One of the things that you do in the book, I believe, is to rest us, to pull us out of, of this misshapen, uh, misinterpreted understanding of the gospel. And you do that first by using uh, a she pronoun for the author of the mm. gospel of Mark. For many, that would be seen as heretical uh, to think that a woman authored one of the uh, gospels, any book in the Bible perhaps, but certainly one of the gospel uh, uh, books that we so rely upon that open up this New Testament to us. And you talk about doing that because women have been silenced, dismissed, mm -hmm. and invisibilized both in scripture and in the world. And so talk to us again about how we, we need to be reintroduced to the gospel to really be able to hear what it's saying to us instead of these theological justifiers. Yeah, it's interesting when we read the gospel, or for me anyway, um, it's clear that it's directed to the church. It's not directed to non-believers. <laughs> it's directed to the church. And it is a reminder of how quickly we abandon our calling. Mm. Um, and then a calling back into community so we can live into and out of this kingdom that is already among us. Right. I mean, I think of the Methodist baptismal vow, which I love. Do you accept the freedom and power God gives you to resist evil and injustice in whatever forms they present themselves? Right. I mean, for me, that's a get up in the morning and say yes all over again, because that's not easy. Right. Um, think what we do with Easter, finding mm. hats and new clothes and maybe have an Easter parade and Easter egg hunt. Easter is a, is a revolutionary moment right. where right. that's frightening. It's terrifying, it says. And the women, you know, I don't think I, I realized that the women were central to the Easter story until I went to seminary, mm. which is just, how could that happen? Been in church my whole life. Right. How could I not know that? Because those voices have been dismissed. Or I don't think I paid attention to the Matthew 15, and it's repeated in Mark, story of the Canaanite Samaritan woman who changes Jesus' theology. Right. Right? I mean, she is a theologian arguing with Jesus in the street. She's womanist. She will not be silent. Mm. She will not be sent away. Um, she will not give up. She will use the language of oppression to come right back and insist that what Jesus is saying is not God's will. And it's just, it's this incredibly powerful example of the world around the church hollering at us right. that we have fallen short, that we have narrowed God's. I mean, twice in uh, Matthew, Jesus is going to say, go nowhere among the Gentiles. Mm. He's never going to say that again right. after his encounter with this woman. 
Now, um, you realize you just said something, again, very radical. Um, individuals have been brought up on charges, and I mean this sincerely. This is factual. Individuals mm-hmm. have been brought up on charges because they said that Jesus changed his theology, that this mm-hmm. encounter with this woman caused Jesus to change. Why does that scare us so much? You know, I do participatory Bible study, right? Mm-hmm. So everybody occupies a place in the story. Not everybody can be Jesus. Not everybody can be disciples. <laughs> yes. And when I do this story with people and people sit in the place of the woman, yes. and the only thing they can do for the first five to 10 minutes is think about who am I? Why do I do what I do? Say what I say? What's going on in my head and my heart? What scares me? Yes. What gives me hope? What brings me joy? And when they sit with that woman, no matter what group I work with, they hear, they hear the transformation. The Jesus people are over there saying, I think he was just testing her faith. <laughs> and then the women come back and say, uh-uh, that wasn't that what that felt like. Right. He threw those words at us, spit those words at us. They were harsh. They hurt. They wounded. But I didn't give up. Because I know that's not God's will Mm. uh, for my child to be outside the covenant people, outside the community of faith. Um, Yeah, so I, I, the stories, and this goes, there's a whole other thing, which may be too long, but I did not go to seminary to become a pastor. Okay. I went because I was a community organizer working for justice. And trying to figure out how churches could read the Bible and not do justice, not change systems. Right, right. Um, not end poverty, not be in prisons dismantling that system. Um, and then somewhere along the line in seminary, when people would say, well, you can't have that kind of church. I said, well, I've been to that kind of church. You can't have that kind. It's a base Christian community. It's mm. a Jesus church. Um, and so felt called to ordain ministry so that I could experiment. Is that possible? Yes, it's possible. Right. Um, Not only possible, necessary. Not not only possible, necessary. Absolutely. It was necessary then and it's necessary now. And you remind me of other feminist and womanist theologians, people like Elizabeth Johnson and Joanne Terrell, uh, who also talk about- Good company to hang out with. I'm <laughs> Amen. Well, like you I'm do. honored to be with you. <laughs> oh, Did bless I you. Thank you. I was going to thank you for your creative courage oh. and persistence and passion and wit and wisdom and large heart and healing hope. Oh, my there goodness. are not a whole lot of bishops mm. that I have found kinship with, um, but I am so honored to sit with you and, um, yeah, to say thank you Mm. for your witness. I'm grateful you have gifted my life. Now, it would not be appropriate for me to sit here and have to cry on on this (laughs) podcast, but that's what you're about to make me do. I am humbled. I'm humbled by your words. But you really do remind me uh, of these feminist and, and womanist theologians because they talk about this kenosis of patriarchy or the self-emptying of the male-dominating power in favor of a new humanity of compassionate service and mutual empowerment. And again, they talk about how we've gotten, as you said, the Easter story, the cross so 
wrong. That, that, that when we see that as God ordaining that kind of violence, right? Mm. That kind of sacrifice is the only way we might be saved. Right. We miss the opportunity to see it as really the culmination of Jesus's life and what empire did to him because he came with this kind right. of, of embodied, countercultural, turn the world upside down kind of message. And that that's what I see and hear in both your book, Practicing Resurrection, but also every time you speak. Uh, and so uh, tell me about how important it is. And I ask this question a lot, and I'm going to keep asking it, because I don't think that we've brought enough voices into our exegesis of scripture into our preaching. And I think that's why we're, again, these justifiers of theology that you talk about, how do, how, how can we, how do we need to widen the circle of voices that help us interpret scripture? I am convinced again, that participatory Bible study helps. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the things that I've experienced is working with the Luke six text um, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is now, mm. today, the kingdom of God. Yeah. Woe unto you who are wealthy, for you have received your consolation. Right. Um, and if I go into any group, any group, and we have, I say, let's have four churches. We'll have one very wealthy, very large, so many staff people. You got everything you need, congregation. Mm-hmm. You've got one sort of classic Methodist congregation. Not big, not little tiny, but, you know, right there and, and getting by, but but not wildly um, successful right. in either growing numbers or money. And then you've got a storefront mission mm. version. They're meeting maybe in a community center or right. something, and they got a part-time pastor that <laughs> also gets money from some other church. Right. And then you got folks just hanging out in the parking lot mm. um, who are wrestling with this text. And the... Uh, job, the task they have is to come up with a three points for their sermon and a title for their sermon and a song of invitation. Mm. And inevitably, the first group, the wealthy, big church group, spends so much time, like, how are we going to not alienate people? This is a really (laughs) hard text. And I tell them, you cannot substitute the text. You Mm. must use these verses. You cannot put anything else in but they want to refer to other texts, you know, point spirit. It's really, I mean, it's, it's everybody. It's right. not about economics. Clearly, it's about economics. Um, and when they give their report, one person comes from their group, does it fairly quickly, mm. and does it almost as an apology. You know, we know this is hard, but okay. So here's what we're going to do. And the hymn of invitation is something soft. Um, everybody's invited. There's no big challenge. Right. Um, and it goes down the scale. And as you move down to the parking lot group, people get louder mm. and more rowdy and it's more communal and it's more radical. Right. right? So often the parking lot group starts infiltrating the other group. Say, hey, have you read this text? <laughs> I mean, this is some stuff right here. Um, you know, and banging on the door. Say, hey, 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 if you believe this stuff, mm. we got to change. Um And so the fact that that can happen in any congregation with any group of people says that even the minimal thinking about a change in social location can help us hear the gospel. Mm. And then you magnify that 
by having prison ministry be redefined by people on the inside. So it is not us taking anything. Mm. It is going to discover and hear the gospel inside the prison right? in circles that are led by, facilitated by people who are caged. Mm. And that changes it. Or, or in a battered women's shelter. Right. Um, right. Or in a juvenile detention center or at a food stamp office or out in the streets, anywhere you can find proximity and partnership. So ministry with not any version of two or four. I think the church has substituted programs for proximity and partnership. Right. Um, And that has nothing to do in my mind with the gospel. Again, referring back to that video that I watched, where I mean, you 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 have the people on their feet, and 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 you bring them to to almost shouting uh, with what you offer. But you talk about that the church needs to get away from programs and get into yeah. some deep, long term partnerships, right? Right. W- w- with those that they claim, right, to to want to be in ministry with. But again, often it's more like charity. It's more like we'll write the check, we'll we'll send the socks, as you said, we'll send right. the backpacks. <clears throat> um why do you think we resist that long-term deep partnership? Because it would require changing systems <laughs> and Lord. changing our theology. Right. I mean Kelly Brown Douglas in her book Resurrection Hope talks about white, just as white supremacy mm-hmm. hasn't disappeared, neither has the theology that props it up, mm-hmm. uh, created it, perpetuates it. Right. And so I think um, so many of us, and I was one, and I continue to stumble, mm-hmm. um, want to find the gospel as simply comforting. Right. Just make me feel better because everybody's got misery in their life. Right. Um without the challenge, Mm. but it's a challenge over and over again. It's an invitation to abundant life, to live fully. And we think it's less, um, but it's more. Right. Uh, I think for me, that requires community. I won't remember that. I won't honor that. I won't say yes to that every day unless I have a community. Bishop Carter says this, that will hold me and hold me accountable. Mm, Yes. Um, That will push me and prop me up mm-hmm. uh, on every leaning side when things go wrong. Amen. Um, and I, I think, you know, Ted Myers and Walter Wink argue that every healing in the gospel is a shifting of the scandal from the person labeled unclean, unworthy, unvalued, un whatever right. to the systems. The systems. Uh, so it's not the kids who are flunking out of school. It is the public education system that, insist on one way of measuring what is of worth and limits what learning looks like. It's not folks labeled illegal aliens. Nobody is illegal. It is a country that has stolen land from Mexico. And as Jim Lawson says, created this plantation capitalism that depends on low wages um, and workers. It's not the folks in the prison, it's a nation that has less than 5% of the world's population and cages more than 25% of the world's prisoners. Mm. I mean, you can go on and on and on, right? right? It's not 16,000 people a month coming 
home from being caged. It's congregations who have no open doors. And if they do have an open door, often have a litmus test yes. about how someone um, measures success, what success looks like to them without right. ever understanding what it was like to be caged. Right. I mean, again, I've been going in since 75 and I always get it wrong. Mm. I remember sitting in one of our circles one day in Frederick who had been moved from death row to the low side um, somebody says the prompt is um, one thing you're grateful for. And he says, grass. Mm, and I'm God. like, we have had a two hour thick discussion and you're gonna give thanks for dope. <laughs> for dope. And, uh, but I don't say that. I say, would you like to say more? <laughs> right. And he says, yeah. Cause when you're in this little cage on death row, and if you're lucky, they let you out for an hour a day and the floor is concrete and the walls in the top are wire and everybody tries to stick their hand out through the wires to touch the grass. Mm. You can't do it, but I don't know nobody who don't try. Who doesn't try. And then several weeks later, Devin's on death row and he's moved to the low side and the officers know more than I know, and they let him roll in the grass. Mm. And he just laughs and he stuffs it in his mouth and in his pockets. Wow. All those years, trying to touch the grass, and there it is. I mm. just think I am broken open over right. and over again and called to account by people for whom this story is loud, raucous hope. Mm-hmm. <laughs> really, really good news. Right. Um, and for me, maybe over and over again, a challenge and an invitation uh, to live more fully. Right. Well, and to think, I mean, so first of all, I love your terminology. You continue to to not call it a cell, which sounds a bit nicer. You keep calling yeah. it a cage. And so you remind it us of, of what it really is, right? Um, but also this notion that we can learn from the caged, that we can learn from the dispossessed, that we can learn from aspects of society that most of us, if we're honest, you know, feel better than. I, I love how right. you talk about, uh, again, turning the academy, again, if you will, upside down and saying yeah. we can become the students and those that we would often uh, look down our noses at become the teachers. Because I think that's the gospel, right? <laughs> I mean, one time I was teaching a course on evangelism and I um, asked people to spend seven hours in a place where they could listen to. They had to have no power. They weren't offering any service. They were just listening to people who were struggling to get by day after day. They right. could go to a bus station. They could go to a food stand office. Um, and this is an intensive course. And they come in the first class. And I would say that probably 35% of the students had completed the assignment. And why? Because church, I I mean, it's just, it's a lot to do. It just, (laughs) you know, I'm so overwhelmed by all the things that church requires of me. And so then we read the four gospels together and we say, who did Jesus talk with, listen Mm. to, hang out with? Where did he spend most of his time? Right. The contradiction is clear. Between what the church spends time on, where we spend time, who we listen to, who we learn with, who we do theology with. Right. And Jesus constantly 
um, story after story, being with folks for whom this is life-giving to find someone who wants to make the first last and the last first. Right. Right. Um, Yeah. This notion of time and where it's important to spend our time um, makes me think about the story you tell in the book about your trip to Nicaragua and how your eyes were opened. Uh, For sure. the, The difference between working with a community rather than, again, a sort of disembodied charity to a community. And you talk about taking this long trip uh, in a truck. And by the time you got there, you all could barely walk because you'd been over such bumpy roads and, and in this cramped position. And, and, and you said you all went from house to house and, Mm -hmm. and listen, let me let you tell the rest of that story, what it meant to you in terms over against sort of our capitalistic approach of, just right. go and, and drop something off. Can you tell us about that? Sure. So we're going to a community that wants to build a well. Right. Um, they have no running water. There's a river, but it's way down the hill and they have to carry buckets up. Um, and so we go house to house. It is raining. Um, we're in the mountains. And in each house we sit and we just listen and we drink some more coffee. And I am thinking to myself, you know, this is so ineffective. Um, But I'm trying to learn from folks in Nicaragua. And so then eventually people from all the houses stand around the place where the well will be. And we're in the rain and we have a lot of silence and a lot of storytelling and a lot of just short kind of, hmm, this is what I'm thinking about. Mm -hmm. And again, I'm thinking, where's this going? I mean, come on, we got to get things done. Right. Um, and we go back down the mountain. Um, nothing has happened. We don't have a well. There's nothing that got dug. And we go back down the mountain. I'm trying to figure out in this truck how to ask the question of, really? <laughs> I mean, we just dug five, six people up mountain, negotiated with the contest, they get through the thing, listened in the rain, and what? Right. You know, here's how you do it as a person from the United States. I know how to get things done. <laughs> and they said to me when I asked some polite version of that, um, then who would care for the well? Mm. Because if the well belonged to the people from the outside, if we were the ones who decided where to put it or even uh, gave them the right to decide where to put it, but we built it, who would care for it? We right. would leave. Right. And again, I mean, it, it's, this is my ongoing conversion. It happens daily. <laughs> um, I'm confronted with the ways in which empire thinking occupies me. Right. So that I don't even imagine a different approach, even though I think I'm trying to. Right. 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 I mean, I tell the story, too, in there about the first time I saw a base Christian community and I totally missed. I had studied it. I'd mm-hmm. read about it. I hosted folks from base Christian communities and I still missed when I saw it for the first time. Right. Um, yeah. So maybe other people are faster learners, but I find that every single day I need to be held and held accountable um, by folks for whom having the first, last, and the last first is really good news. I, I don't think you're a slow learner at all. I think you open yourself to learning that many in the church 
don't even see as necessary, right? Don't even see as a part of our discipleship. And again, you call us to such radical discipleship. Um, I was struck the other day by a quote from Miroslav Wolf, who says, there's something deeply hypocritical about praying for a problem that you are unwilling to solve. And it seems like a lot of your life's work has been about about not just sitting in the comfort of, of a stained glass enclosed sanctuary, but actually getting out into the streets, getting out, getting your hands dirty, getting your feet uh, embedded in the soil to actually make a difference, to help solve some of these problems that are all around us. Why do you think that so many in the church are pacified, satisfied with offering thoughts and prayers to things like gun violence right now? That I was with the 7,000 high school and college students yesterday mm-hmm. at the Tennessee Capitol. Um, was it yesterday? Um, yeah. Um, again, because I think that doesn't require much from us. Right. We can um, believe that we are supportive without actually doing anything to change the system. Mm-hmm. I go back to um, 1975 when I'm a single mom, three part time jobs and two children and um, a community organizing group, largely impoverished women, invited me to testify before the Tennessee legislature yes. on an AFDC bill. Right. They were going to cut. Uh, aid to families with dependent children. And so I remember standing up and saying, I don't think you should do that because I don't think you should do that because I think it's a really bad idea. (laughs) And then I sat down Mm. and the women said to me, that was so brave that you came today. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And come to the meeting on Saturday. We have childcare. It'll be great. And they like that little church, loved me into a different place. I mean, that's really where I found my voice and my vocation. It's where I understood that I had value and purpose. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think think there's a hunger in our congregations for that same thing, although we don't know it. Right. Right. when, When we're in the settled places, when we're in the places with out much challenge where we can just sort of slide by and things are comfortable and our worship and our Bible study and our reading um, keeps us in this kind of quiet, um, non-threatening, non-challenging version right. um, of faith. Um, then we just continue on that because there's no reason to disrupt it. Mm. But I think something in all of us, even when we're in that place, is hungry to find the kind of grace that explodes grace our that imaginations, explodes. the kind of grace that transforms us. I love your um, title on the conference, Transform Lives, Transform Lives. Right. Absolutely. And I think we know the difference between sort of... Um, a softened, cheap grace, mm, as they right. say, but, uh, and this, you know, loud, raucous, rowdy, shaking up the world manifesto kind of grace. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. Mm. Uh, and I, I think another piece of that, I have one tattoo, um, 
and it's Dainu, uh, the Hebrew word for more than enough, part mm. of the Passover liturgy, which people will say tonight. Right. Um, we'll remember as if we were the folks uh, who were caught in oppression, mm. who were enslaved, just as if we were, because we are. Right. That we have been liberated, that we're on this journey, and that we are just as we are more than enough. More than enough. Because God has provided more than enough. So it's a theology of abundance instead of scarcity. And Amen. I think so many of our churches live in this theology of scarcity. There's not enough. So we got to hold on to what we got. Right. There's not enough. Right. So it can't be those people. It can only be <laughs> our people. It's not enough. But when we are in this theology of abundance, you just keep dancing at the welcome table because mm. there's room for everybody. Everybody. Amen. And that's the good news. That um, is good news. I love that yeah, imagery Dorte of dancing. Zole, do you know, do you know Dorte Zole? She's a German theologian. She's dead now, but um, I met her in Nicaragua. She mm-hmm. says every day we have to practice amazement because mm-hmm. the world seeks to numb us. Yes. Um, yes. To catch us in amnesia. So we don't remember. So we practice awe, very concrete awe, mm. spider web holding raindrops awe. I love that. Um, we have to unlearn and let go because every day we got something that's stuck in our heads, our hearts, bodies that we need to unlearn and let go. Right. And we have to resist in order to heal and heal in order to resist, mm. both as individuals and communities. We resist the powers of death. Yes. So that yes. we can heal. And we heal so that we can resist, mm. so we can remember who we are, so we can live into and out of this invitation from God about the truth about creation and all of us. Right. Sorry, I think I'm... No, please don't be sorry. That's beautiful. Again, the imagery of dancing, the 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 invitation to to find awe to be seekers of awe that that is so important because and and you lead me to what I was going to ask you next as one who then has has been in the trenches of this kind of of justice and 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 work toward liberation how do you care for your soul how do you care for yourself so that you are not overwhelmed or overcome by what you've experienced seeing people in cages, knowing individuals who are, have been incarcerated uh, and on, on false charges, um, children in abject poverty? Again, you've worked with Marion Wright Edelman. Talk to me about as how, how you've cared for yourself and your soul as you are so deeply involved in this work. Um, I think there's kind of two directions to that. I mean, one is I do things like walking. Mm -hmm. um, And when I walk, I usually have a mantra of connecting with creation and beauty and body and gratitude and just do it over and over again. Mm -hmm. Oh, creation (laughs) and beauty. Body still works. I'll be 75 next (laughs) year. Amen. Amen. And, um, you know, gratitude, just deep gratitude for life. So walking, connecting with the outdoors, being in the woods by water, mm. all of those things, listening to music. Um, but also it's the circles inside the prison um, that and people who have been formally caged. I mean, I often talk about 
I go into the prison and I'm usually grumpy because I don't have time. It's going to take forever. There might be a new guard at checkpoint. He's going to have some new rule. Uh, The folks won't be able to get out of their cages for the circle of blah, blah, blah. I always come out laughing and hopeful. Mm. I mean, we have a circle on death row. We have members who have been executed. We have one member who has even served the last meal and then got a and then was not executed. One uh-huh. other person who went within six hours. Anyway, we have this circle. We do Thich Nhat Hanh meditation. Okay. Yes. And when we sit in a circle and we offer, let us enjoy our breathing together. Mm. Um, the power in that space changes. It shifts. Right. Uh, you can feel you can feel this different spirit Mm. and to be with people who bet everything on love in a world that has consigned them to death. Yes. That has said they are not worthy of life. We've trained 12 mediators on death row. We have a mediation process that's Mm. approved by the prison system. Okay. um, So that the folks, the state has condemned to death are seen as conflict transformers, mediators. Um, They, in that belly of the beast, they Mm. are who God created them to be. Yes. They are all of them. Mm. Um, So, yeah, that's, I mean, that's just such thick hope, uh, such fierce faith. I'm taken um, over and over again. Well, I was going to ask you where you find hope, and you just told me. In the, in the margins, in the places that, again, most of us don't want to go, in the places where we send those, right, that, that, that again, we have scandalized, in the places that, that we don't even want to imagine, right, they're removed from our sight. Those are the places where you just said you find hope. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. Well, and I I think everyone would. I mean, I just did a retreat for Methodist churches in North Carolina, and they invited me to do a retreat. So I said, well, I don't do retreats on my own. I could bring some of my partners with me. <laughs> so I brought Raheem Buford, who went in at 18 and spent 26 years in a cage for an accidental shooting. Mm. Um, and I took Eric Alexander, who went at 16 and was in for 11, caged for 11 years. Um and it shifted the conversation, right. Right? right? I mean, if you do the mark, if you do any text, but one of the most startling texts for folks is to do the Mark 5 text. We still call it the Garrison Demoniac, even though he is no longer possessed. Right. Um, it's the one where the man is freed, liberated after the community has chained him up time and time again when he breaks free they reach him and it's the community that asked jesus to leave because it's so upsetting it's the community that's afraid of the man when he's clothed and in his right mind you do that with someone who has sat caged for 26 years Mm -hmm. and your hearing will change even if you're on the outside yeah you just imagine that noise it will change so again Um, your hope is in actually embodying the gospel and 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 making it alive for us today. Well, I think I often think 
I do meditation. Sometimes in meditation, I have images. I had this one image where I was on the beach. I had chains all over me. I was all bent over. And this kind of Rastafarian guy comes marching down the beach. He's going pretty fast. He turns and looks at me and says, come. And I'm like, look, I got chains. Oh, I can't. I don't, how can you just leave? I got chains. <laughs> and he continues to walk and then turns around and says, let go. And I realize I'm holding on to these chains. If I let go, they fall off. My God. Um, and that's a permanent one for me, right? I right. hold on to things that prevent me from embodying discipleship, mm-hmm. that prevent me from living out of faith, you can see. Um, yeah, which is why I need a community that, that keeps saying to me, hey, let go. Let go. Let, let go. go. Amen. Um, well, I'd like to close our time together. And again, it has oh, been no, fascinating. That's so sad for me. I know. Okay. Me too. Because this <laughs> has been, uh, again, an enriching and a wonderful conversation. But as they say, all good things must all come to things. an end. And I'd like to close our time together the same way you close your book. And to those who are listening to this, if you uh, don't have a copy of it, I ask you to try to find a copy of Practicing Resurrection, the Gospel of Mark and Radical Discipleship. But you close the book quoting Dr. Emily Towns, who is herself a social ethicist, theologian, poet, and dean of Vanderbilt Divinity School, who offers this blessing and benediction of hope and freedom. Hope reminds us that we cannot accept the death-dealing and life-denying ways in which we have often structured our existences. All who hope in Christ have Mm. accepted a gift that will always challenge and always change us. We are Mm. set free to serve and free others with full hearts. We can do this. Yeah. And this conversation with you today and your life reminds us, Dr. Wolf, that we can do this. Thank you and God bless you. Mm.